Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Printing Money. My name is Alex Kingsbury and uh, today I have my co-host present with me, Danny Piper. Hello, Danny. Hey, Alex. And today we also have a special guest, uh, Tali Roseman. I first got to know Tali back in her Xerox days. Uh, Xerox had acquired Vader Systems and um, we got to talking about uh, a couple of things that they were doing over at Xerox, um, experimenting with some new alloys uh, and so on. Um, Tali has a background in 3D printing, previously spent a lot of time at Stratasys as well. So she has a really interesting perspective across the industry and also got to oversee a couple of M&A deals, uh, which is, is really exciting. And, and I think that a lot of this is going to come out in our episode today. Um, Danny, what, what's been your experience of Tally? Yeah, I think we must have met her about the same time. Um, Tally, refresh my memory, but I think you moved to take over the Xerox job sort of like the week or two before COVID hit. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Two weeks before COVID hit. Uh, yeah, I so- think uh, I- I think that's about right when we met and what like horrible timing uh, for that to happen. But maybe as, uh, as Alex said, why don't you jump in, fill in some of the gaps. I think, you know, we've, I think a lot of people know you from Xerox and some may know you earlier at Stratasys, but maybe you can just give us a, a little bit uh, a bigger flavor on what you've done. Yeah, so I, I started my career in corporate development, so mergers and acquisitions and minority investments in startups. And I came to Stratasys about 10 years ago under that hat. So I previously was not in, in manufacturing or 3D printing or anything of that sort. I came to Stratasys when we when Stratasys wanted to, you know, build an empire of 3D printing. So I led uh, a lot of the acquisitions like uh, Solid Concepts and Harvest, which formed Stratasys Direct Manufacturing the GrabCAD acquisition, um, and, and a few others. And we also did minority investments uh, in LPW that got sold to Carpenter and in Desktop Metal, which you know now is, is publicly traded. And then at Xerox, I, we had an early stage uh, metal technology and Xerox wanted to figure out if they could monetize it. They were really kind of on a spree to try and monetize all the different early stage assets they had across all their research centers, uh, across a multitude of domains, including 3D printing. So we kind of built LM Additive almost from the ground up, took the LMX printer to market, sold to customers like the Navy, Department of Energy, Siemens, and others. Um, And then sparing all the kind of turmoil and changes eventually came to a very happy ending with uh, kind of spinning it off from Xerox and selling into Aditech. And uh, since then, for the last year, I've been uh, an advisor to a few early stage uh, companies in the additive space and uh, some other uh, investors looking into the space as well. Well, it's good. I think having the uh, the big company experience, both at Stratasys and at Xerox, and now the small company experience is sort of relevant to the topics of M&A and financing. So I'm guessing we should probably start rolling into some of these transactions. Let's get into yeah. it. Uh, first one, uh, Danny, this is your victory lap. So congrats to you. Um, but also a victory lap, I think, for I3D Manufacturing. They're acquired by ERA Industries uh, just very recently. I know that you've been pretty busy on this deal. Do you want to tell us about it, Danny? 
Yeah, so I3D is based up in Redmond, Oregon. They are one of the original, you know, early metal 3D printing service bureaus. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think they started around 2012 and have been plugging away. They don't sometimes get the same publicity that the Centavias of the world or the more 3Ds and Kodomo have gotten, but they've been slowly building over time, have uh, grown immensely, especially since coming out of COVID, landing some really nice production programs. And I think one of the things that you know we've seen in this industry largely for metal service bureaus is that historically it was largely metal powder companies that were buying these. And Nikon shifted that a little bit with some strategic acquisitions uh, on more 3D. But I think what we're, I think largely a lot of people in the industry probably share the same sentiment that we're going to see more and more manufacturing companies moving into the service bureau space to integrate really additive and the CNC side of the world. And this is a great example of that. So L Squared Capital is based out of Irvine, California, their private equity group. And they recently acquired ERA Industries in Chicago just this past summer in June and have been very quick to start integrating additive into the platform. So I3D is technically the third acquisition that they've done overall in this platform since starting this in June because they did pick up one more smaller company called Elmec, uh, Gen Elmec in, uh, in Connecticut. That happened sort of the month before ours. So um, this is going to be exactly what we expected, just starting to see sort of the larger CNC companies moving in, integrating additive. I think you're going to see more of this. Uh, Middle Ground Capital had uh, acquired a company called Megatech. So if anybody remembers, there was a press release uh, at Rapid on... Uh, middle ground seeking out uh, opportunities in this regard as well. So there are there are a few more executives running around this space from the additive side that are all looking to sort of bring private equity into the fold. So I think this is the first uh, of a few of these, but um, you know I think it's a great thing for the additive space to get more uh, private equity involvement. And I, and I think there's other private equities as well. Uh eyeing the service bureau consolidation space, right? Like uh, Core out of Chicago. Uh, American Industrial others. Partners yeah. as well. Yeah, another one for sure. Um, yeah, and we've had a couple of other service bureaus on this show that we have discussed that have received either, you know, in, in investment or, you know, acquisition. Um, so definitely, Danny, what you're saying um, is is right. And, um, and also to that point of, you know, previously we'd seen metal powders companies acquiring these bureaus. Uh, now we're getting more of the, the manufacturing base um, coming in to acquire. So um, yeah, it's a, it's great news for I3D and obviously, you know, additive is extremely complementary to CNC, um, you know, machining. So nice yeah. little partnership there. Yeah. This was a great deal for everybody involved. I think for the, the shareholders and investors behind I3D for the ERA team, I think they're going to do very well. They have a very experienced CEO and, uh, I think that, you know, stay tuned. I don't think this is going to be the end of the story for them is uh, they, they are very acquisitive and have been, I think, you know, very well coached with the L Square team as well. So uh, great team. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wishing them all the best of success going forward. And I, like I said, you're going to hear more. Maybe it's a good transition because there's another LBO deal that, that uh, played out um, as well as sort of this next one. So Alex, why don't you jump into this, uh, the, the next sort of transaction? Yeah, that's right. So Rapid Processing Solutions was acquired by Go Engineer just uh, the other day. And it was an undisclosed amount, so we don't know what the deal value is. 
Um, but rapid processing solutions, if you haven't heard of them before, are a 3D printing service bureau style of um, uh, offering. So uh, doing polymers and metals um, and uh, Go Engineer um, via its financial sponsor, Court Square acquired um, RPS. So um, you did mention, Danny, LBO. And so just for the listeners um, who aren't completely up to speed with the financial acronyms, do you want to just describe what that is? Yeah, it's a leveraged buyout. So that's a buyout that involves the ability to use both debt and equity where you get to use some leverage into it, right? So the least amount of capital and equity that you can write, uh, as long as the debt is reasonably priced and you can service it, it's sort of the ideal scenario for the sponsors of the world to minimize the the equity capital they got to put out on a transaction. So typically this is done whereby they are leveraging up. Now, in this case, we don't know enough about rapid process solutions, but usually these are companies that are profitable and leverage works or alternatively go engineer being so profitable, you could pick up the assets in a transaction where they could still use leverage. So. Well, I had a question, Tali, on this one. I mean, because you brought this up on, you know, this is one of those areas where I think this is largely more polymer focused. And you know, I think about Stratasys and some of the work that you've done. I think we're going to pick up on on some of those transactions in a little bit. But like Core, you mentioned a lot of the stuff like Fathom that they had done is yeah. in the polymer space. So, um, yeah, I, I would anticipate this really kind of you know non competitive with the I three D transaction, but really more into this the the polymer service bureau ecosystem here. And yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think we're going to be seeing a lot more consolidation in those spaces. I think with the, you know, kind of trend of reshoring and everything, it just makes a lot of sense to start consolidating manufacturing power. And then I think private equities, to your point, they look more at financial metrics than, let's say, a vision and a dream of some of the <laughs> other deals. Right? There, there's, you know, when you put money, you either put it into a dream or you put it into, into financial metrics. And private equities put it in financial metrics, which are much easier to handle with the service bureau. That's a lot more predictable. And I think that's why you're seeing private equities there and you're not seeing private equities buying into other 3D printing companies. Yeah, because a lot of them are more venture which is sort of, I, I, I feel like uh, venture capitalists are glass half full people and uh, private equities, glass half empty people. And, and it's just that, to your point, they're financial engineers. They're really here on companies that are profitable, squeak out, figure out how to finance them, optimize them a little bit. But they're not going to be the kinds of investors that invent a new technology and integrate it into a market that hasn't been done. Yeah, so actually, I'll just uh, correct myself there. I said rapid processing solutions with metal and polymers. You are correct, Danny. It is polymers only, and it is non-competitive with the I3D deal. Exactly right. Um, speaking of polymers, uh, M Holland has been acquired by Interfacial Consultants. This was the 3D printing group only of M Holland. So I should say that M Holland itself, uh, we, we were just talking about this before, weren't we all? Um, it was Revago Group that has... Uh, bought out M Holland, but then spun out immediately afterwards the 3D printing business unit of M Holland, and that's been acquired by Interfacial. So, a few sort of slicing and dicing activities happening there. Yeah, this is. Uh, I'm going to put this one in the next deal we're going to talk about in the corporate carve out bucket. Right, this is this is not a full on separate entity. They just carved out the 3D printing assets of M Holland. And I say they, Revago bought M. Holland in August and turned around and sold out the 3D printing assets in September. 
And so the next one we have here is the uh, Stratasys, um, sold their urethane manufacturing assets, which were a part of Stratasys Direct. Um, Tally, I feel like that this is a, a great one for you to talk to. What is behind this uh, sale of the uh, the urethane manufacturing part of Stratasys Direct? Uh, what was the purpose of, of Stratasys selling off this little business? Yeah, it, it, it's funny because I led the acquisition of that asset. So <laughs> I can talk to that. This is part of uh, Solid Concepts, which, you know, in 2014, 2015, we bought back-to-back Solid Concepts and Harvest to form Stratasys Direct Manufacturing. And a lot of the vision back then was really to build Stratasys into this, you know, empire and one-stop shop, both for printers as well as for part production. And, you know, we thought we needed capabilities beyond just the additive capabilities. If we're going to be a one-stop shop for, for parts production as well, you know, speaking of the financial valuations and everything, you know, we paid $300 million for Solid Concepts. Uh, which obviously now looking back and thinking about the multiples, that was um, much higher than the multiples. <laughs> I, I, I was being diplomatic, yeah, but it's much higher than the multiples you're seeing now. Um, and really, I think, you know, this is, you know, that part of the business has nothing to do with additive. It was something we acquired, again, as part of uh, the larger acquisition of Solid Concepts. And this is just indicative of Stratus is trying to more focus on the core business and presumably also, you know, get a little bit more cash in the bank. You know, in fairness to Stratasys, I think, you know, back in 2015, we were like in a different time in a different world because it was sort of really about the time. I think that all was being negotiated, contemplated was when the peak of the market occurred back in the mid teens for both Stratasys and 3D systems. And so your ability to trade on stock and raise capital at very high valuations back then that doesn't make that acquisition y'all did uh, back for solid concepts, you know, two off market. Matter of fact, it was, you know, pretty market back in those days. I think if I recall something in the neighborhood of kind of five times revenues, which is where a lot of things were being done. But on this one, um, I was trying to dig in a little bit and, and Polycraft, which is owned by the uh, Margine group. They're in Poway. There's not a lot of information, yeah. very limited website. I don't think this is a big money maker for anybody. So I don't think there's going to be a huge, uh, amount of cash because just looking at the uh, the website, I think it's you know a smaller operation. But interestingly, they it looks like they make a lot of soft tools for probably cup customers like uh, General Atomics, which happens to be they have a facility down the street in Poway. So I'm guessing this is where they're just consolidating the supply base with those two for you know the big customers in that that area. So um, at exactly. least that's my read on it. I'm not sure if that's. Uh, I, I fully agree. I think it's a kind of a local consolidation of, of of a small entity into a larger one, and a, and again, a good opportunity for Stratasys to focus on the core business and shed off non-core assets. Yeah, this wasn't a 3D printing uh, business. Yeah. Can I just ask a question, Tally? Perhaps with a view to maybe a larger Stratasys uh, strategy around, um, you know, they obviously make and sell 3D printers. And so having this um, business unit of Stratasys Direct Manufacturing is is more of a bureau style offering. Um, and we know that, uh, I think it was about two years ago, 3D Systems sold off their service bureau um, business unit. And um, there seems to be this continuing debate in the industry around you know, making and selling machines versus m- making and selling parts for customers and, and the potential as well for a bit of um, 
conflict with your customers where, you know, if you are making and selling parts, you also might be selling machines to bureaus that are making and selling parts. You know, what's what's your take on that and, um, you know, where you think Stratasys should be sitting? Yeah, I mean, our strategy, you know, nine years ago when we did these acquisitions was one, we thought the service bureau is needed to help customers adopt additive. So maybe they are not going to buy a printer immediately tomorrow morning, but this is a good way to um, get them comfortable with additive, have them start as a service bureau customer, and then gradually grow into buying printers. We also thought it was a good way for us to um, to learn about other technologies, uh, right? Like, for example, in the metal space, which Stratasys did not have, and we thought this is a good way for us to get familiarized with these technologies. I think a lot of the synergies didn't happen. This whole using the service bureau as as means to to grow it and and certainly didn't justify three hundred million dollars in solid concepts and the additional funding on uh, on harvest. Um, and I think yeah, it definitely uh, caused some frictions with some of the service bureaus. So um, there's other ways to get those synergies. You know, it's three D Systems is the one that started this, right? I mean, if you go back and look at service bureau acquisitions, they pretty much gobbled starting around you know. 2010, 11, they started buying up a bunch with that same thesis. And in part, I always thought that they did it because they were trading at very nice uh, valuations back in the day. And by adding incremental revenues and services, it, it, it sort of made sense, both from a trading perspective, as well as to your point, Tali, I think you got it exactly right, is that this is a way for you to have a, a good way to interface with customers who maybe weren't ready to, to pick up a printer, but you could educate them and you'd get a lot of customer interaction out of it. And then Stratasys came along and really this was your first, when I say yours, Stratasys' first big acquisition in services was the solid concepts deal. I mean, this yeah. was sort of that put you on the map and you bought the biggest one sort of going, you know, at that time. So it, it was an interesting time for that to occur. And I don't think, I'll think some of the stuff like Jeff Graves, what he did in spinning out uh, quick parts, it wasn't all of the uh, direct manufacturing, but it was sort of, you know, the things that were, were rapid prototyping, lower margin business, and he was trying to right size the balance sheet a little bit. So some of it does make sense for that and customer engagement. I don't think we're, we're done with the OEMs not having service pieces. Um, I think there's still going to be elements of that. So. And 3D systems still have a really good applications development team, though, so who will do things like, you know, low volume production and um, and, and plenty of other OEMs have that as well. It's just that they don't have a, a public facing service bureau model. Um, and I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, do we think that this with Stratus is spinning out this um Eurothane manufacturing assets, is this more of a, a trend that we're seeing more broadly in the industry, which is that um, OEMs might be moving out of, of, of bureau offerings? I'm not sure that that's necessarily what Stratasys is going to do. It's, it's probably just that it was this was more of a distraction to their bureau offering. But Yeah, it doesn't seem like it was core. This is the urethane business only. This isn't uh, their 3D printing assets in this one. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll just make one final comment on that is that I think it's very hard for CEOs to do divestments of assets because you're immediately taking down your revenue and in an era where everybody wants to see growth. And yes, you can explain, oh, it's because we spun this part off. It's because we divested. But it's it's really hard to kind of communicate that to people who are just looking at the top line. Yeah, with, with, the, one, with the one thing that uh, is interesting, this is the right type of environment to do it in where people are less concerned about growth and more concerned about profitability, 
So you're exactly. you're exactly right. The timing on this is uh, is probably easier than historical periods. I think you nailed it. Next one is uh, Restore 3D. Restore 3D has actually been the subject of a couple of different episodes of Printing Money in the past. Um, they've done some acquisitions. They have done some fundraising. Um, and this latest one is $29 million, uh, that they have just finalised. It does include $12 million of the crowdfunding that we mentioned back in Episode 6. Um, but Restore 3D really is a, a personalised implant company, uh, so doing largely orthopaedic um, implants. They just recently acquired Conformis, uh, which is also a personalised implant company and, and previously have done acquisitions um, in the orthopaedic space and personalised implant, implant space. Uh, so Restore 3D certainly seems to be going from strength to strength. Yeah, I'll, I'll clarify on the uh, Form D filing. It was and there's $29 million. You mentioned $12 million was the crowdfunding that we mentioned on episode six. So it was really $17 million of new equity that came in on this round. And, uh, and we did cover the conformist acquisition before, but that technically closed on September 5th. So you can put a bow on that one. And, uh, and that is done as well. So it looks like they've got some new cash that just kind of came into the company from that standpoint. And so they've got some runway to go. So we'll see what happens here. Yeah, I mean, certainly after buying Conformist, which wasn't profitable, and presumably they spent a lot of their capital on that deal, which I think was about $16 million, then they needed presumably some additional capital uh, to support that uh, cash burn. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so next one is uh, Trio Labs. I think this one's really interesting, actually. They've raised uh, $2.13 million in VC financing just in September um, of this year. Uh, investors undisclosed at this point, but Trio Labs have an interesting story. Um, Danny and uh, Tali, do you want to give us a little bit of an insight into what Trio Labs do and where they fit in the market? Yeah, so Trio Labs, um, who I know well because actually in LM, when we were in North Carolina, they were just a, a few blocks up the street from us. So I know Adam and they have a phenomenal team there. Um, they developed a micro metal printing technology and you know, before you were saying about 3D printing companies, should they sell printers or should they sell uh, parts? Uh, Trio is actually doing the third thing, which is developing applications using the proprietary technology. So not just kind of fulfilling part orders, but they're developing uh, medical devices that you could not previously make using their proprietary hmm, uh, micro metal technology. A little bit yeah. like a, a 3DO or a holo type approach. Yeah. So yeah, you, you mentioned hollow. So I think that micro metal space is really heating up. We saw big funding rounds from Fabricate Labs. Um, you have hollow, you have Matchape that's backed by Ventures, and now you have uh, Trio. So, uh, you know, I think that space is drawing a lot of capital um, and, and for good reason. Yeah, I, I met uh, Adam at uh, Rapid in probably 2017, right, as he was forming the company. And I think he's got a, a very you know interesting path into the medical device side of the world. As he's pretty focused there, not to say that's only where he's going. He's been trying to put a big team around him. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I do think that Steve Nigro, who was at... Um, HP is on his board. He's got a few other advisors that are working with him. And uh, he's been sort of at the fundraising 
you know, game for a little bit here. He raised um, his first really outside money in 2018, which is about a million dollar round. So this, I think, is the second really financing round that he's done. So he's done, uh, to Adam's credit, the amount of money raised into Trio Labs at this point is fairly light relative to a lot of the competitors that we mentioned in terms like the Fabricates. Uh, And so, or really any of them. So it's remarkable that he's been able to kind of keep this going and, and running at a fairly uh, light touch. He did another 4.37 million in 2021. There, there were a couple uh, investors, Kaido Technology and Life Science is a corporate investor. And then you had a, a couple of VC investors in Lateral Capital Management, Venture South and Vision Tech Partners. So this round that he just did, they did not disclose the investors. That This round closed on September 13th. So it's a fairly new round at 2.13 million. Yeah, so I'm not kind of sure about the previous uh, investors and the amount raised, but uh, for sure they're extremely uh, capital disciplined, um, very financially disciplined, which I think to your point before, it's very important in this uh, day and age. And their uh, advisors is kind of a good mix between additive manufacturing people and people from the medical space. Um, and so that's really where they're targeting. Yeah, and definitely, uh, as you know, as we've just talked about with Restore 3D, we we don't uh, sort of so much struggle to get investment in the med tech space. Uh, med tech is a whole entire other industry, of course, outside of the 3D. 3D printing is just an enabler there. So from micro to perhaps a little bit more macro, um, Hattie is a company that has just raised 3.5 million of venture funding. Uh, and they make sustainable furniture. So um, certainly not the micro devices, uh, medical technology devices that we've been talking about, um, much larger, larger products. Yeah, no, and this is, I think what we, we've kind of hit on a few of these. And I think that the next couple are going to be sort of the application side of 3D printing. And so it looks like they're, I, I haven't dug in enough if they're direct to consumer or if they're going to have standardized uh, distribution models, but they're leveraging 3D printing to make uh, sustainable furniture. So um, this is their third round of capital uh, to date. Um, they have some names like Alumni Ventures who've come up many times on uh, this podcast. So, uh, But prior to that, in December of 2022, they raised an angel round from a single investor at $2.5 million and then had done a seed round uh, just the month before. So uh, at another almost 3 million. I think it was 2.92 million. Um, and the next big one is Mighty Buildings. They have raised 52 millions in Series B venture funding. Uh, they do, as I understand it, like a um, not just 3D printing buildings, but more of 3D printing in, you know, integrated structures, like for example, you know, steel reinforcement and so on. Yeah. We, we, so in our prior, we've, we've, you know, episodes we've covered, I think it was SQ4D and kind designs. And what you, I think we typically see are these concrete extruders that, uh, you know, sit on a gantry and you see this house um, being built. And I think this one is a little bit different um, in that they are doing, I think, finer feature. Uh, it's, it's a concrete substitute material for walls that integrate into steel framing. So, um if you look at sort of the investor base here, this is the who's who of Silicon Valley. You've got Coastal Adventures. They have 42 investors. They've raised 139, almost $140 million to date. 
So um, you can go on their website. If you are interested in buying a home in Southern California, you can just go on there and uh, they are working with local developers. So what we don't know is internal financials, but I think by the vote of confidence, they've been you know knocking out some big financing rounds uh, and with some really big name investors. So um, the fact that they're getting something done in this environment leads me to believe that they're picking up some cost savings relative to traditional manufacturing of homes. So yeah. this is, and, and as you said, from very reputable investors. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, and, and look, building technologies, and we brought Poway up earlier. Um, there was a very interesting company doing panelized construction there, um, leveraging, you know, a very similar like automated manufacturing process. So this area, it's ripe for these kinds of technologies to come in. The hard part is integrating them because traditional building and construction people don't have this type of knowledge. So I think that's the hardest penetration point for our, our, the technologies in our market to really get into the hands of capable people in the industry that know how to use them. So panelized construction is a way to go. Um, sort of this prefab construction is probably one of the better ways to use it rather than sort of infill development and traditional builders. So pretty cool. And I, I say this is definitely one to watch mightybuildings.com. Uh, Go check it out and you can see sort of some of the projects that they're working on. So that we might move on to the public markets now. Um, the one that uh, came out uh, just over the last month was Vauxhall Jet. Um, they've announced that they're going to do, quote unquote, a review of strategic alternatives. Um, so what does this mean in financial speak? Basically, it means that they need to look at uh, off ramps for their business um, because they're not going to survive uh, much longer on their own. Um, we just recently had an interview with Rick Fuller from Desktop Metal where, you know, I slightly teased him about, you know, you might want to consider combining with the um, next biggest uh, binder jetting um, company or I don't know if they would necessarily call them next biggest. It's a, it's the next biggest standalone binder jetting company perhaps um, is fair to say. So uh, it looks like there's a, a bit going on. Voxel Jet has, uh, has I, I would say, sort of struggled to get market share. Um, in this space, they do. They've been around for a very long time, a German-based company. Um, but now, uh, I guess you know this will be one where we will, I am sure, be coming back to this in future episodes because uh, perhaps they might have found their strategic alternative. To your point, they've been pretty flat on the top line, and they've been losing money for quite a few years now. So I'm not surprised that they're looking at well, what are our options now. Um, and, and I think, you know, looking at, you know, about $30 million of revenue and everything, you know, there is a business there, right? So I think yeah. they will get picked up by a buyer. Yeah, there's definitely a, a business there for sure. And, um, you know, usually when you hear the word strategic alternatives, it means the company's hired an investment banker to, to sort of run a process on the company. Yeah. So and in this case, it's BNP Paribas. And um, and I'm sure for everybody who's been around, Christian Hardenberger, who's at BNP Paribas, has been around the industry for a long time. So um, I would say stay tuned as uh, there will be more on this story. I'm, I'm I'm willing to guess over the next few months as this uh, hits the market and they run their process. So because they were probably wound up and ready to go before uh, the announcement was made. So they're in market, I'm sure. Mm. And I'd luckily, just, there are a few companies now looking to, you know, spend some cash on M and A. So <laughs> I think I think we've got a quite a few of them now that we've got an untangling of the complex web of 
nano dimension and stratasys and 3d systems and desktop metal so um so there's some room for voxel jet to uh to maybe play in that game that's perhaps what they're doing just basically saying putting up their little flag and saying hey guys don't forget about us uh you know <laughs> so it's probably worth mentioning too x1 and voxel jet uh share some common ip so that they will they license some common ip um, so there is a bit of product, uh, not necessarily product overlap, but more IP overlap there between the two companies, uh, which is why uh, why I made the suggestion to to Rick the, in our last episode, um, because I think it would be pretty complimentary. Honestly, it's just more a matter of, you know, is is DM in a position to be able to take advantage of, of Voxeljet in this, in this time? Um, the next one on not so great news either uh, is Smile Direct Club, uh, which we have previously sort of talked about in, in other episodes um, more in relation to a line. Um, so this is in the uh, orthodontics space of uh, doing, you know, retainers and so on for, um, you know, smile correction, teeth alignment, straightening, and so on. They have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, they've had a, a troubled history, I think, with a line sort of snapping at their heels legally um, and, and struggled to get a little bit of uh, market share capture. Um, they've relied a lot on the HPMJF technology as well and I think have gone in a, a slightly different direction to Align um, in, in not wanting to, you know, previously we mentioned Align acquired Cubicure um, and that was really uh, Align signaling that they want to move towards direct printing of aligners, um, whereas Smile Direct has been much more focused on the MJF technology um, and printing printing molds. I don't know if this was uh, tied to the technology. August was a brutal month for the company because two things happened. They had an earnings call, and in that earnings call, it became evident that they were in a negative cash position, which put them in a a, a little bit of a hole probably one that could have been recoverable, but for the second event that occurred, in which case they were in arbitration with a line on a supply agreement and the arbitration uh, was awarded to a line to the tune of $63 million. And so when you couple those two together, uh, I think the company scrambled to try to get some financing in the interim period of time, but filed bankruptcy in uh, October 3rd, I think it was the date that they filed that. Yeah, the the um the company's founders uh, in this announcement have said that they've committed at least twenty million to just bolster the balance sheet, um, and also uh, another sixty million dollars of additional capital is also available uh, upon uh, quote unquote upon satisfaction of certain conditions, including the favorable conclusion of a marketing process. Um, so what that's saying is basically the, comp- the the founders believe that there is a future for Smile Direct, and I think that that's you know that is correct despite their precarious financial position. No doubt there will be some uh, some path forward for Smile Direct here, but just remains to be seen what that is. Yeah, I mean they're pulling close to four hundred million dollar in revenue with very rich gross margin, so. You know, undoubtedly somebody will pick them up at the end, um, but at least in the short term, that's probably going to be a hit for HP because they're probably not going to be buying any more printers or, or scaling production. Yeah, cool. yeah. The, the one thing about the comment from the owners putting additional money in, and the question is going to be, how is that structured? This is pretty common in these uh, arrangements when you file bankruptcy. Uh, you try to come in as a stocking horse, you get a couple of preferences when you do a buyout. So it could be the owners would 
you know, are trying to figure out and organize a team to come buy this out. And they're going to run a full process, but uh, as a stocking horse, you get some benefits there. So that sounds like maybe what they're doing. We don't have visibility into sort of who's running that process at this point, but I'm sure there is an assigned entity working on behalf of all the creditors to go out and do a transaction here. So, And, you know, maybe, I mean, given that the, the difficulties in court, um, maybe a line is a potential buyer there. They will. They're well. They're clearly a creditor. So they are. They there's going to be a secured creditor and an unsecured creditor committee um, that'll vote on any kind of a transaction. So a line will have a say in whatever happens. And finally, um, again, uh, some more not so good news. Hate to be the bearer of bad news in this podcast <laughs> in the public markets, but um, uh, XJet uh, have uh, announced their IPO uh, earlier this year, but they uh, have decided to postpone it. It was considered a what was called a micro IPO. I think at the time, um, this was our episode that we we covered um, XJet IPO with Arno, um, episode four, I believe it was. And at the time, we sort of said, "Oh, you know, it's not not great, not a great year to be doing an IPO, and um, and and probably going to be a little bit difficult for them." So it does seem to have proven out that that is that has been the case. So we we will wait to hear uh, what's next with XJet. Yeah, and I mean, one, I think it's not a good time to IPO, but secondly, to be honest, I think it's. Uh, with where they are in, in, in revenues and, and market traction, I think it's a little too early for them to IPO. I, I can understand why after raising $140 million, IPO sometimes is, is the way to go instead of an exit because of liquidation preference and everything. Sometimes it's it's cleaner for you to kind mm. of do an IPO. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's premature in their life cycle of sales. Sometimes it's not the investors that are driving the IPO. Sometimes it's the founders. And the reason being is with an IPO, if especially if you don't have a blocking right from your investors, you can get rid of your liquidation preference. So exactly. it's one way out of these high liquidation preferences that uh, some of these companies have where the founders are underwater. So this is a common problem in the world of the Series B, C, D kinds of companies because sometimes the value of the company is below the liquidation preference. And what that means for everybody who hasn't heard of a liquidation preference, oftentimes when investors put money in, they get a what they call liquidation preference. Let's say they put $10 million in, they get the right to the first $10 million coming out. So that's their liquidation preference. So if you imagine a company has raised $150 million that's valued at $100, that liquidation preference is probably around $150. And so you are, there's no way to do an M&A deal without everybody getting crammed down. If you IPO, the liquidation preference goes away. So that's one thing that happens in this market. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes here, um, but this is sort of one of these where you're starting to see some of the tech companies IPO. Um, in the last couple of weeks, there's a few of them that are starting coming to market. And this is one of the problems that they're trying to work through in all of these. Um, and I think this is something where, you know, stay tuned. All all these Series B, C, D companies that are you know probably trading at market values below what they've raised in terms of amount of capital are going to have to deal with. So IPO is not a great answer. <laughs> to your point, Tali, I agree with you. Um, but this is one of the reasons why it's an option that is often pursued by some of the founders, ironically, and not as much sometimes the investors if they've got liquidation preference issues. So. Yeah, it's it's funny to think about it, but you know, unless they uh, 
you know, uh, get sold at, let's say, at least $150 million, then the founders, the employees, everybody that do not have liquidation preference would get zero dollars, literally zero. But in an IPO, even if the company valuation is $50 million, they get some money. Um, and so I think even though it's premature, this is why a lot of companies are doing it these days. This is probably why XJet is considering it. And we're probably going to see a few more of these. Interesting. So it's basically just a, a Hail Mary then for the founders. So just to wrap up, Tally, I can't let us go or let you go uh, before I ask for some very brief comments from you about the latest um, cancellation, obviously, of the desktop metal and Stratasys merger. Uh, Tali, you have a long history with Stratasys. Um, I believe you're also a, a Stratasys shareholder. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on um, on this deal being terminated? And a history with Dust Up Metal, because when I was in Stratasys of for course. development, we invested in them. That's right. Yeah, well, the two companies have had a lot of shared history um, of which you have been part. So, so please let us know your thoughts. Uh, yeah, look, I think Stratasys shareholders uh, made the right call. Um, Again, you know, I voted against, you know, I have 0.0001% of Stratasys. So it wasn't, my vote wasn't the the swing vote. <laughs> um, but I did join the vast, the overwhelming majority of shareholders in uh, declining the deal. I think uh, desktop metal is overvalued versus Stratasys in this deal. Um, and I also think it's, uh, one can't underestimate the complexity of integrations and extracting synergies, you know, apropos what we were just talking about with solid concepts and the forming of SDM and a lot of the synergies were not materialized there. Um, and that's why I, I thought that would be the case with DM as well. So I'm glad kind of the shareholders did the right thing and uh, we'll see who Stratasys is going to eye next because I think Stratasys should be acquisitive Um I just think it wasn't necessarily the right target at the right price. Keep in mind, Stratasys is uh, evaluating their strategic alternatives right now, the same way VoxelJet is, with uh, JP Morgan running that process. So mm. what that means, I don't disagree with you, by the way. I'd like to see them become acquisitive in, in the market. So, of course you would um, do. And, and so, uh, and, and I have a list of companies. They should come. They just need to call me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, no, I, it'll be interesting to see, but uh, love getting your feedback on this one as well. Yeah. So anyway, we it, it, it is actually a really good point, Danny, that um, that Stratasys is examining their strategic alternatives. They obviously have been just courting offer after offer, um, and it's it's. I think it's fair to to put now that the DM uh, chapter is closed to be able to just open it up for a more. Um, broader conversation for Stratasys and what they should be doing. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously the the DM Stratasys thing has come to an end. I want to wrap it up now, um, but before yeah, I do- You can never say they come to an end. We, we've already learned that. All They've right. been going, this, this could play out a, a lot more, but I, I digress and <laughs> just stay tuned. That's all we- Yeah, should. this is, I call it succession, the 3D printing version. That's right. We're all ra- we're all waiting for that TV series to come out. It's a direct to Netflix special, I'm sure. <laughs> um, hey guys, uh, before we wrap up, I just want to say it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the atrocities that have occurred in Israel recently. Um, which, mu- with much of the technology and many of the people in the AM industry coming from Israel, you know, including Stratasys, 
also NanoDimension, um, and, and many, many, many others. You'd find it hard not to find anyone in the industry that hasn't had some connection to Israel in some way. So our thoughts are with the people of Israel, and we hope that peace and stability returns to the region soon. This has been Printing Money, uh, episode 11. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.